2: Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Listen, we have so many shows coming up. On March 13th, we're at South by Southwest for the first time ever. We're going to have author Cambry Cruz, magician Brian Brushwood, and comedian Aparna Nancherla. And earlier that day, I'll be doing a storytelling workshop called Storytelling from the Bar to the Boardroom. The emphasis will be on storytelling for your career. Three to five minute stories that you can use in career situations. On March 22nd in Los Angeles, we have Rachel Feinstein. Her Comedy Central special is getting raves as I speak. She was huge on the last season of uh, Last Comic Standing. So don't miss Rachel Feinstein at Risk in Los Angeles on March 22nd at the Nerd Melt Theater. And on March 29th in New York City, we have our favorite Janine Garofalo. Janine is like family to us now, and you just never know what she is going to say on the Risk stage. That is March 29th at the Pit and in April, we have dates in Providence, Rhode Island, Albany, New York, and uh, Portland, Oregon. So always be checking risk-show.com tour for when and where to see us live. Now here's the show. Oh kids, this is the risk. The show where people sell your stories. Fain ever thought they the share. I'm Kevin, I listen <laughs> Jesus God Oh my goodness. What you might ask was that? Well uh, we were recording the Talking backwards there and then re-reversing. I don't know what the hell we were doing, but we started the show like that because the theme of today's episode is, what's going on here? Stories where people were just as confused and (laughs) beside themselves as I am most of the time. This is Professor Click behind me now and we are going to start the show with a lady we've been trying to get on for a long time she is super smart always surprising a great voice to have out there on the comedy scene this is helen hong at our live show in los angeles with a story we call the fountain of youth
1: My uh, my family immigrated to the United States when I was two years old, and we lived in a tiny little one bedroom in Flushing, Queens. And the thing about immigrants that Republicans love to harp on, which is kinda true, is that uh, we all have humongous families, like ginormous families back home, and uh, whenever one of us comes over to the New World, we try to bring everybody uh, uh, else on over. So. Our tiny little one bedroom in Flushing, Queens, was just like, a, just a train, just like one after another of just fresh off the boat Koreans. It was just like a steady stream of like, you know, freshly immigrated Asians just coming right through the one bedroom. And um, so the summer that I was five years old, uh, we had an uncle staying with us. And it was summertime in New York City, it sucks, it's like swampy and sweltering and hot and we didn't have air conditioning, we were poor, and like the cockroaches are celebrating Mardi Gras and (laughs) the rats are like having street parties in the apartment, like it's crazy, it's disgusting. And my mom had just had a baby, she had just had my little sister, and so I'm sure they were trying to get my uncle out of the house in whatever way they could possibly do it. So... The plan was that he was going to take a little five-year-old me to Coney Island Beach for the day. And uh, Coney Island Beach is like the most populous beach in America, pretty much. It's just packed because it's like one of the only beaches that's accessible to like all of New York City. So uh, Coney Island Beach is abundant in two things, Uh, immigrants of all stripes and freaks. And uh, by the time I get to the end of the story, you will realize that we were both. <laughs> uh, so there's like, you know, it's like mayhem. It's like there's fire eaters and you know, and tattoo boots with pe- piercing boots and hot dog contests and like reggaeton music is blaring and old Russian babushkas are washing under their boobs. <laughs> Puerto Ricans are getting pregnant. Like it's mayhem, it's total, total freaking chaos. And there and there goes little me and my uncle. And I have to tell you, on this particular day, I was looking fierce <laughs> because my mother had dressed me in an adorable little red bikini with little white polka dots on it and ruffles and my hairs and pigtails. And you know, Asian kids are kind of adorable anyway, as it is, but I'm like a 10 on the precious scale. <laughs> I am just. Precious, 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 so I remember. So I'm looking adorable and it's sunny and it's warm and I'm like, you know, I'd probably only only been to the beach a couple of times before. So I'm like, oh my God, the beach. I'm so excited. It's totally idyllic. I bound down to the water. The first wave hits me and I promptly shit myself. (laughs) Now I know this is like, you know, this has happened to all of us, right? Where you go into the water, you go to the pool or you go to the beach, you get in the water, it's way colder than you expect it to be. The water hits you and some sort, you're having some sort of bodily reaction and you're like, oh my God, I have to have a bowel movement right now. Usually when this happens, you know, you can be like, oh, you drag yourself out of the water, you run to the restroom, you're like, ah, and you know, you make it no harm, no file. But I am five. So boom, it's just shit. I just shit right then and there. Like no time for reflection, no chance to say a prayer. Not a, I don't even know if there was like, if I even thought that anything could be done. It was like, boom, shit in my pants. In my tiny little adorable, roughly bikini bottom. And for some reason too, this turned out to be like the biggest dump I had ever taken (laughs) in my entire five years of life. You know, you think like an adorable little five-year-old takes little poops, no. For some reason on this day, I'm like channeling like a 300 pound dude who had just had like a full Mexican dinner with extra chipotle sauce and a pitcher of margaritas, like the whole nine yards, boom, like humongous dump. And it's, and I'm in the water, so it's like totally weighing down (laughs) my cute little bikini bottoms. Have you ever seen that um, Norman Rockwell painting with the little girl and the dog has like, the dog has grabbed her little bottoms and is like pulling it off and you can see her like white little butt? That was me, only in my case, the little dog was a steaming pile of crap. in my adorable little bikini bottom. So it's like pulling off and I'm like struggling to keep it on. <laughs> now this isn't even like the most, sh- this, is, this isn't this is the t- the time that I'm like, oh my God, feeling shame. I'm not even, cause I'm five, you know, I'd probably only been potty trained for a couple of years at this point. You know, when you're five like shit happens. I'm definitely mad at myself. I'm definitely like, mm, I pooped and I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm not, like, feeling mortified at this moment. I'm just, like, sort of angry at myself. And I'm like, oh. No. Uh, The mortification came afterwards with how my uncle decides to handle his niece's shitty situation. Which is, you know, he could have chosen, like, a bunch of different ways to sort of deal with this scenario. But no. What he decides to do is he pulls off my... Dump-filled little bikini bottom right there in the middle of the boardwalk on Coney Island. In front of the fire eaters, in front of the hot dog stands, in front of the babushkas, everybody. He pulls it off, throws it in the trash can. And then he decides to wash my shitty ass in a public drinking fountain. (laughs) Now, I have no idea why he decided to take this route. You know, like maybe he thought it was gonna be weird taking a half-naked five-year-old girl into a public men's restroom. Maybe he had never seen a drinking fountain before. Like maybe they didn't have them in Korea in the 80s. I don't know, I have no idea. Maybe he underestimated how creepy and weird this was gonna end up being. (laughs) Maybe he was just a kind of a strange fellow but uh, all I know is that I am dangling in midair with my ass in a drinking fountain. And, you know, the water pressure on those things is not great. You know, we've all drank out of a drinking fountain. You know, it's just, you know, it's not, it's not made for like power hosing stuff down. It's that, you know, that sort of pleasant stream that comes out because you're supposed to be drinking from it. And also uh, water fountains do that thing where it's like, the pressure changes, you know? Like it's big and then it's small and then it's big and it's small. So between the light water pressure and then like the the varying size stream of the water and this like huge chunky poop that is still on my ass, it took forever. It took forever to get the crap off my ass is what I'm saying. So I had like quite a, quite a long time sort of dangling there in midair with my ass in this fountain like to ruminate, you know, I had some time to think about it. And this, has, this scene at this point has just stopped all the action on the rest of the boardwalk. <laughs> like the reggaeton record has scratched. <laughs> the Puerto Ricans have stopped getting pregnant. Um, you know, the fire eaters are like, huh, what's happening? Even the old Russian babushkas are like, this is fucked up. <laughs> what is going on? And you know that you are doing some whack ass immigrant shit if like old Russian Jewish ladies are staring at you like, oh my God, I would never. (laughs) This is crazy, this is crazy. You know, you're pulling some serious like level 10 wacky immigrant shit. So, um, you know, so I'm there and I have a lot of time to think about it and like I start feeling this feeling. You know, my face is getting hot and I'm feeling this tightening in my stomach and like my my breathing is getting a little faltered probably because my uncle's like squashing my abs at this point. Um, and, I just, and I just, and this was shame. This is the first time I felt shame just in the middle of the boardwalk in Coney Island. Everybody's staring and I'm just like, oh my God, you know, face flushed, like feeling this horrible feeling. And, uh, you know, I wish I could say that this was the most shameful thing That has ever happened to me. But obviously, you know, now I'm in my 30s and, you know, plenty of other shameful things have happened since then. And now at this point in my 30s, like, you know, it barely scratches the top 10 (laughs) of shameful things that have happened to me. And I can tell you, uh, unfortunately, from experience and with conviction, that shitting yourself in public when you're five way less embarrassing than shitting yourself on a first date at 29. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much.
3: When I was younger, my worst fear was that I'd have to tell my mom I was dying of AIDS. But there was a really good reason for that. It all started when I was six and my mom dropped me off at my friend John's house. As soon as I got there, he had this really excited look on his face and he waved me to come into his room. And when we got in there, he told me to be quiet and out from underneath his bed he pulled out two penthouse magazines and now I had never seen a naked girl before and this was just top and bottom just naked page after page and it was really exciting we knew it was kind of wrong we knew we shouldn't be doing this but we're just so excited to to be looking through these magazines and then I looked down and I had this gigantic boner I just started getting really worried because I mean how long would this last what if his mom walked in the room and she saw this or or what if what if it didn't ever go down my mom picked me up and on the car ride home she'd see it and I'd have to explain what we were doing and we'd get in trouble and just the whole thing got me really worried and so I did the only thing I could in that moment I asked John how do you make it go down and he came over and he put his hands down my pants and just kind of really mechanically just kind of rang it out like a dishrag and it hurt a little bit but it made it go down and it worked so I was really glad about that and I went over and did the same thing to him and now I hadn't thought about that day until a few years later when I was in health class and we started to get the first information about what sex is, and you get this book. I went home and I, I just rifled through the pages, so curious. And I came to a chapter on this thing called AIDS. And I learned that AIDS can kill you. And I also learned the number one way that you contract AIDS is through homosexual activity. Which I assume meant something like boys touching other boys. And which I had partaken in a few years before. This just sat in the back of my mind. You know how something snowballs over time? I just started looking for symptoms. Not really 100% sure at the time, but as the days passed, I would do things like take my temperature every morning or look for other symptoms. Like if I had a white tongue, I'd look in the mirror to see. Uh, Every time I had diarrhea, I would think, oh, maybe maybe that's the AIDS. I I was looking for it. And as time passed, I became more and more convinced. Um, And the symptoms just kept popping up everywhere. And so I started taking a Pepto-Bismol every day before class. Because if you look on the box, Pepto-Bismol cures all the symptoms of AIDS. Nausea, diarrhea, vomiting. This was going to work. If I just took one of these tablets every day for the next, what, five years? I figured I can make it through this. I could keep this secret. And so the months just peeled away from there. October, November, Christmas came in December, all the way through January. It actually worked until one day in February when I got really, really sick. And my mom took me to the doctor, and the doctor told me, Chris, you have the flu. And I thought, no, you don't know. I was really upset. The AIDS had come much earlier than I thought it would come. I spent that week at home in bed, trying to recover. And in that time, I started planning for my death. I wrote out a will where I left my rock tumbler to my sister, my hamster, MC Hamster, to my brother, and all the money I had gotten from Christmas to my mom and my dad. After about a week or two, the fluid seemed to go away, but I still had those symptoms. I still had the nausea and I still had the diarrhea and occasional vomiting. A few weeks went by and I still had some of the symptoms and the Pepto-Bismol, it wasn't working. I was so anxiety ridden at the time and just out of control. And, and, and it felt like, you know, I couldn't keep the secret any longer. So now it's Saturday morning. I'm home at 8 a.m. vomiting in the toilet. When well, my mom walks in and she's like, Chris, are you still sick? And I say, Mom I have I have a secret I have to tell you. What's that? Mom I have AIDS. And she was just perplexed but sincere. Uh, oh, Chris. Why why do you think you have AIDS? Because when I was 6, I touched John's penis and he touched mine. And she said, oh, sweetheart, that's not how you get AIDS. And I thought, oh no, my mom doesn't even know how you get AIDS. She doesn't know about homosexual activity. And now I have to explain all of this to her, and my mind was just racing, and I felt, I felt more sick in that moment than I had in, in all f- the four past months. And I just felt horrible, and she just stopped me right there and said, Chris, the only way that you can have AIDS is if John put his penis in your butt, or if you put your penis in his butt. And I said, what? Like, I didn't even know what that meant. Like, ew, that was disgusting. I thought she was joking, and ugh, but, She asked, is that what happens? And I said, no. And she said, well, then you don't have AIDS. And I believed her. And I felt so much better. I mean, I remember being outside later that day, building a snowman. Just everything was normal again. I I was cured. Later that night, my mom asked me if I had felt any better. And I told her I felt cured. I felt great. And she said, you know, Chris, too much worrying it can kill you and so it was from my mother that I learned there are two ways to die from AIDS by worrying yourself to death and the other has something to do with butt sex
4: So soon we, so soon we, so soon we too old to carry, and we knew it, and we knew it, and we knew we only had a little while in the middle, in the middle, in the middle. Just keep ticking over before you know it, before you know it, before you know it. Parent to parent
2: This is Risk. We're hearing Pelican by the Maccabees. And before that, we heard a story by our very own Chris Castiglione. He is our, um, well, he's helping me build a storytelling workshop specifically for business people, like the one that we're going to be doing at South by Southwest on uh, March 13th. We're always emphasizing to people that there are, uh, you know, a storyteller can master different kinds of stories for different kinds of listeners in different contexts. <laughs> like uh, that one he just told is certainly one you would not use in a business context. And that's why we call it, Don't Treat Your Dick Like a Dish Rag. And before that, we heard. Lo que me gusta del verano es poder tomar helado by Papa Topo. God damn it, Papa Topo. Don't put so many words in your song titles so that it becomes blatantly obvious I can't speak a goddamn Mickey ficken word of Spanish by the time I get to the end of the title. Things just got really tensed between me and Papa Topo. I'm sorry about that, folks. There's some sort of transference I apparently have to work through in my non-existent relationship with Papa Topo. All right. our next story comes to us from the sweetest guy in the world, Mr. Steve Agee. You know him from the Sarah Silverman program. I hope to have him on many times in the future. This comes back from our shows in San Francisco uh, back in January. Oh shit! Look at this title. It's La Promesa. I'm pretty sure that's Spanish. Who put that there? Who who called this goddamn Papa Topo? All right. You all enjoy this story by Steve Agee. I clearly have a thing or two to be clearing up right now with Papa Mickey Fickin' Topo.
5: Uh, When I was 17 years old, uh, me and two of my really good friends decided it would be a good idea, Memorial Day weekend, to go down to Mexico and go surfing. We'd done it before. Um, I I grew up in Southern California, so trips to Mexico weren't that weird. Um, So we leave my house on a Friday and get across the border with no problems at all and uh, we were going like deep into Baja, Mexico, like south of Ensenada, and so when we get to Ensenada, we're like, this is, uh, this is the last stop before we go out in the middle of nowhere. We got to get supplies, and supplies meaning <laughs> a whole lot of beer, because we were like 17, and the drinking age in Mexico was 16, so we're like, we can buy all the beer we want, guys. We're old enough, and so What better to go with uh, three cases of beer than pounds and pounds of fireworks, (laughs) which are also illegal in Mexico. And I don't mean like black cats or uh, sparklers. I mean like sticks of dynamite, like M80s, M100s. And so we get everything we can carry and uh, go down to this beach, remote beach in the middle of nowhere. And there's maybe two other people camping down there. And the first night is great. We get drunk, and we sit around a campfire. It's just like, felt like Kerouac or something. We're like, yeah, this is the life, man. We're in Mexico. We could live here. And the next day, we get up in the morning. We go surfing. It's great. The afternoon, uh, the waves blow out, so there's no more waves. We're like, well, let's uh, let's dig into this fireworks stash, you guys. And um, we didn't want to bother the two or three people that were already camping there. So we're like, well, let's walk like a mile up the beach, middle of nowhere, and we'll just start blowing shit up. Like, that's a great idea. And so we pack all the fireworks under our arms and go really far away. Like, there's nothing around. It's pretty amazing. And we start blowing stuff up. Bottles, cans, small cacti. We're like exploding shit and loving it. We were alive. It was amazing. And uh, at one point, me and my friend Kent are laying on top of this rock, and uh, my other friend Chris is, like, way down below us, and he he has this, like, coffee can, and he sticks a big M80 under it, and he lights the fuse, and as he's lighting the fuse, he looks up at us and then past us, and then his face goes just white, and then he turns around and starts running. (laughs) And he does not stop running, and I've never seen someone... (laughs) who wasn't an athlete run that fast. We're like, dude, you're out of the blast range. Why are you still running? And, he, and then Kent and I turn around and we look and there's uh, about nine Mexican guys with machine guns and not uniforms. These are just dudes dressed in plaid shirts and cowboy hats and, and just gritty looking dudes with AK-47s. And they're walking, and they aren't smiling, and so I see like nine guys with guns, and I get up to start running, and they start screaming at us, alto, alto, which means stop. That's basically all I learned in Spanish classes. I knew what stop meant, and they had guns, so I stopped. And uh, so they get up to us, and they are screaming. All of them are screaming at the same time, and... I don't know what they're saying, and uh, I, I can recognize, Al- I recognize Alto, and, but other than that, I'm like, I don't know what you mean, and they push us to the ground, and they make us get up on our knees, which, in all the movies I've watched, that means you're about to be executed. <laughs> that means we go to our knees, we get shot in the head, there's maybe a shallow grave situation, maybe not, I don't know how things work in Mexico. It was like traffic, it was like that movie Traffic. And uh, and I'm like I'm like shaking, and the one guy who I'll call the leader, I don't know, like he sticks the barrel of his AK-47 right between my eyeballs, and he's screaming, I don't know what he's saying, and I'm like, I no comprende, I, English, English, speak English, please, fucking speak English, and I look over at my friend who has checked out. He's just standing there with like. He's gone to another place uh, in his head. Like I'm like, oh, I was kind of jealous. I'm like, fuck, man, I want to be where you are, but I'm too present in this horrible situation. And uh, I'm like, English, (laughs) please, English. And uh, the the guy uh, says uh, in broken English, he's like, what the fuck are you doing in Mexico? We're like, surfing! We're surfing! You can see our car way down there on the beach. We're we're down there. We're surfing! Kids! We're kids! We're surfing! And, uh... He's like, which car is yours? And for some reason, I lied. There's, like, two cars, and I'm like, uh, the orange Volkswagen. Like, I don't know what I'm gonna gain by that, because he's obviously gonna see us walk to the other car and get in. But he's like, you and your friends get in your car. And you drive away and never come back to Mexico. I'm like, okay, no problem. Yeah, we can do that. That's totally doable. And uh, he pulls the gun off of my face, and uh, they they just kind of back away. And then they turn around, and they start walking away. And I'm, like, trembling. And I, like, grab Kent by his arm, and I'm like, let's get the fuck out of here, man. And we walk back to the car. We pack all our shit up. We throw it in the car. And then... We sit and wait for an hour for our other pussy friend to come, like, sneaking back. An hour later, he's, like, sneaking back along the coastline, along the beach, like, like, fucking, I know he saw what was going on, like, fucking asshole. And then, like, the whole four-hour drive back home was basically me and Kent screaming at him, like, how could you fucking leave us when... I would have easily done the same thing and I, had I been down there, I would have been like, fuck them, I'm out. Like, oh, you dick, and, uh, and we were, I'm 43 now, I was 17, and to this day, I have not been back in Mexico. And not because I'm a pussy, but because 25 years ago, I made a promise to that Mexican guy with a gun to my forehead. All right, thank you guys very much. Enjoy the rest of the show.
6: 13, I looked like the kind of girl that would make a responsible babysitter. And that's what my aunt and uncle thought when they offered me my very first job. They wanted me to watch my younger cousins, Tom and Rebecca, who were aged 3 and 5, while they went out to a party. And I was thrilled. It was 1974, it was the Hamptons, and most of the adults I knew played hard, and worked hard, but when I saw them, they were mostly playing hard. We lived about a mile and a half away from my aunt and uncle's house, so that night my mom drove me over at about five, dropped me off. And the first big mistake I made that night was to ask my aunt if my best friend Mousie could come over and help me babysit, and she said, sure. My aunt didn't know my best friend Mousie very well, my best friend, Mousie was so much fun. She was so resourceful, but she was also so naughty. Especially since she had moved to California and come back east with all kinds of grown-up knowledge that was completely new to me. Like how to smoke pot from a used V8 juice can. And how to steal high-end swimsuits from an expensive boutique by shoving it into your tank top in a certain way. And even that very week, we'd gone out to lunch together at a sandwich shop and found ourselves short of the bill. And my friend Mousie ingeniously pulled from her pocket three beautiful African glass beads that she had just shoplifted that morning and ceremoniously left them on top of the bill. And as we left, we skipped out of that restaurant thinking that we had really done right by our waitress because those were some beautiful glass beads. So my aunt and uncle went out and Mousie came over and then we when it came time to put them to bed we read them stories and sang them Joni Mitchell songs and they went to sleep. And afterwards Mousie turns to me and she goes, Let's see what's in their liquor cabinet. And so we mixed up two big glasses of gin and orange juice. Mm-hmm. And we, we tossed back, each of us, two of those gin juices in about 20 minutes. And it was my first time drinking hard liquor. And so we weaved our way back to the living room, sat down and watched an episode of Columbo giggling the whole time. And then after a while, it came time for Mousie to head home, which she did. And I readied myself for my aunt and uncle's return. And I did this by pulling down off their shelf one of the biggest books I saw that looked serious. I started a chapter and I guess I must have drifted off. The next thing I knew, I wake up to find myself on a road in the dark alone. And I I looked around and I saw the corner of a lawn And it it was my neighbor's lawn. And I looked up, and I could see my own front door. And I'm flushed with panic and horror. Because clearly, in my sleep, I've abandoned my cousins and walked off into the night barefoot, a mile and a half back to my house, leaving them alone. And all I knew was that no matter what, I had to get back to that house as fast as I possibly could, any way I possibly could, hopefully before my aunt and uncle came home. So I turned on my heels, and I started running down the road in the dark. Now, I knew that they lived on Lumber Lane, and I had biked there many times, but in my current state, I wasn't so sure of anything. I came to a T. And I looked right and left and I had no idea which was the right way. And I saw this this ranch house about 50 feet away with a light on. And so I, I staggered towards it and stepped up to the door and I saw a figure coming towards me from behind the door. It was a large man in a dark brown hooded robe, looking a lot like a monk. And I heard a voice, a woman's voice behind him go, who's at the door? And he replied, it's just some drug addicted teenager. And I said, oh no, no, no. I I just need to find out where Lumber Lane is. Can you tell me where Lumber Lane is? And he looked down at me and he said, get out of here. Get off my lawn and get yourself off of drugs. I backed away and I turned back to the road and I thought of course he's right but right now I just have to get back to that house and I figured at this point that I just keep running until I found a street sign that would give me some sense of my bearings and I finally came to this lit intersection that looked something like the center of the village of Berchampton. and there nearby was a gleaming limousine and I staggered out and waved my arms in front of the limousine and a woman poked her head out and said, Hey! What's going on kiddo? (laughs) In crescendos of giggles behind her I look in and I can see past her a car full of women and a guy at the wheel with um, tinted glasses on playing it cool. The first woman says, Honey, why don't you get in the car? and so I do. And as soon as I'm in there I'm enveloped by long arms and long nails and lots of laughter and suddenly they want to know all about me and they're all cozy and squeezy and honey this and honey that. And as we pull off into the night they promise that they're gonna find Lumberlane. She says my name's Candy this is Linda and that's when Linda said, hey, Candy, should we tell her what we do? And they all went, no, no, let's not tell her what we do. No, we can't. We can't. And Candy goes, oh, what the hell? We're in sexy movies and Lou here is our producer. Hey, hey, hey. And everyone laughed and, and Lou leaned back and kind of gave a nice nod. And I was still pretty blottoed. But I was starting to relax a little bit. I was still terrified. Starting to relax a little, realizing that these weren't kidnapper killers, nor were they the judgmental ladies' mothers from the tennis club nearby. Um, And and I might just make it through. Even when Candy kept asking me, Honey, you sure you didn't take anything earlier? I kept insisting that I had not. Mostly because I was so mortified about the whole experience. I thought that if I just willed it to go away, it would. So I direct us to go left, and then another left, and then another left, and then the next thing I know we're back at the intersection where they picked us up. And I look up and I see two signs. One sign says Montauk Highway, and the other sign says Lumber Lane. So everybody titters in the back seat, (laughs) and we um, head off down Lumber Lane. And as we pull up my aunt and uncle's house, I can see that their car is in the driveway. And my stomach lurches because I I, I immediately know that all of my dreams of being employed for the summer are dashed. And I sit in the back seat with my head in my hands and Candy says I should just go in and talk to my aunt. Just face it. So I get out of the car and go up to the door, and my new entourage is behind me, and I knock, and there's no answer. I open the door, and Candy and company tumble in after me, and I see my aunt in her bathrobe, blinking in the living room light, and she says, Elise, what are you doing here? I drove you home two hours ago. And I immediately feel flooded with relief. And Candy and Linda are laughing and Lou is chuckling and and this is followed by some awkward introductions and then some assurances by Lou that he will drive me home so that my aunt can go back to bed. And he does. And this time I'm a little sobered up now and I, I know my way back and they drop me off and as I'm getting out of the car Candy says to me, Honey, stay off the bottle at least until you're 16. I sneak back into the house, I climb into bed, and I cannot believe that I got through this night. But I know that the next day is gonna be my day of reckoning. As soon as my aunt looks at the bottle, puts two and two together, she's gonna call my mom and I'm gonna be done for. So the next day I wake up, I go about my business with full of expectant dread, and nothing happens. My mother doesn't say anything. I see my aunt a few days later and she doesn't mention it and then even weirder is the fact that she must have talked to her friends because they want me to babysit for their kids and it turns out the babysitting jobs start rolling in and looking back on it all I can think is well it was the Hamptons it was the 70's and maybe everybody was just helping everybody else out because all of them, all of us were Blatto.
3: Is going on here? You just
4: don't get it, do you?
3: I don't know what the hell you're talking about, man. You
4: really don't get
3: it, do you? What the fuck have you got us into? God, I'm so confused. I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about.
4: I think I can speak for all of us when I say, what the fuck? You don't get it at all, do you?
7: I think there's something funny
5: going on. You don't get it. Sure I do. You're the one who doesn't get it. Do you, you dumb fuck? I finally got it.
2: Do any of us know what's going on here? We are just flat batshit confused. still don't get it, do you? For months, this went on. You don't get it, do you?
6: You really don't get it, do you? And you still don't get it, do you?
0: You don't get it.
2: You don't get it, do you?
0: You don't get it, do you? You still don't get it.
2: Dick Hyman, actual name, song called My Moog and Me. And before that, we heard a collage called Just Don't Get It by Gel Soul and Jeff Barr. Before that, Ding-a-Dong by Teachin'. You'd think that uh, Just Don't Get It would be by Teachin' and Ding-a-Dong would be by Dick Hyman, but it didn't work out that way this time. Flashing back even further, we heard the lovely Elise Pettis telling a story we call Strangers in the Night. Uh, Elise actually came for one of our business storytelling workshops at thestorystudio.org and then came and took our big nine-week-long workshop and told that story in class. And I said, boy, I, I just have to record that one. She ran into an awful lot of interesting people that night I guess it's just a good thing she didn't run into Dick Hyman Or fall back on him for that matter Before that a collage by Jeff Barr called What's Going On And before that the song One Foot by Fun Tell you I have a particular friend with a particular fetish And I'm pretty sure that if he just had one foot and Dick Hyman He'd have no complaints. Our last story comes to us from comedian Mike Amato. I tell you, it's a tricky and confusing thing, booking these shows. Uh, Mike's been telling me for the longest time, Kevin, you gotta have me on, you gotta have me on, and I've been meaning to for the longest time, and I'm glad that we finally did, because it was a real treat. Here he is live at the Risk Show in New York City. The story we call... Dick, Hyman, and the Jewess.
7: All right, thank you. Thank you very much. So, uh, this story is about the power of a woman's ass. I show up at the pub, and uh, this girl is waiting for me there. And uh, she's sitting at the end of the bar, kind of around the corner of the end of the bar. uh, So I could see her from the chest up. And it's a nice chest. And she's cute. And more importantly, she looks like her J-Date profile. Okay, so as some of you know, and as some of you might be able to guess, J-Date Is a Jewish dating site. I am not Jewish, but I have very particular tastes in women, (laughs) which is a surprise to people who know me. Because people who know me know that I'm I'm kind of a horn dog. I I I like. That was a laugh of recognition. I I am a horn. I like women. I like sex with women. And I like all different types of women. I really do. I have really two... They're not rules. I guess leanings. Uh, One of them is... Well, the first one is kind of a rule. I don't have sex with dumb girls. And that's not a snobbish, noble... Thank you. Thank you. I'll accept that uh, patronizing... uh, no, me, I'm the one patronizing. Uh, but it, it, no, it's not really that I... It's some, like, noble thing. It's just I, I, I'm not attracted to them. And I wish I were. There was a lot of hot, dumb people out there. I'd love to fuck. But there's something about a dumb person. I'm just not... And you could tell a dumb person right away. You could tell a... Especially when their tongue sits on their bottom teeth. <laughs> like, you could tell they're dumb. They give off the dumb vibe. And, and I just am not... Interested. I don't want to talk to them after or before, and I don't. So, so that's one. The other one, obviously, is I like Jewish girls, and I don't. They, there's something about them. They're, they're they're raw and they're they're smart. And I know this is stereotype, but it's true. They're smart and they're and 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 they're and they're feisty and they're and they're liberal and they're and they're horny, horny as hell. <laughs> Jewish women are the. Hor- I don't know why. I. I I think I do. I actually have a theory, but it's kind of heavy, so I won't. It's basically, my theory has to do with, it's genocidal panic. But like I said, it's kind of, no, it's kind of heavy. I don't want to, not for tonight. I'll save it for, for my dissertation or something. But what? But I like Jewish girls, and like the dumb girls, I can spot them a mile away. Now, maybe not a mile away, but far away. Like I can actually, like I, w- I was at the beach once and I, I saw a girl like, like 20 yards away and she was blonde and, and, and I just, but I just went up to her, I walked up to her and I said, are you Jewish? And she said, yeah. And we dated. We did. It really happened. I've got like a, like a, a GPS system or something in my, but, <laughs> yes. and um, so I, my friend suggests, well, why don't you go on J-Date? And I said, well, do they let, my people on there you know and 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 she said yeah i think they do and they did at the time i don't think they do anymore and i think i'm why but at the time they did so i filled out a profile and i was very honest i said right in the beginning i the first thing i said was i'm not a jew but i'm jewish right and uh, and i put up my picture and i started getting responses and i talked to and i but every woman that i talked to it seemed i was getting the wrong jew i was i kept having these conversations like so what do you do you're a writer like well, you don't make money off that do you well do you have a car you don't have a car well where's your house and this was. These are not the Jews I'm looking for. I'm looking. I want my my feisty, uh, you know, dark frizzy hair, dark rimmed glasses, journalist. I'm a feminist. So why do I like being held down in bed so much? Uh, intellectual Jew. I want that Jew. You know. And so I did, I kept looking and it's scrolling and I then I came across a girl who looked different from all the other ones she was she kind of had this sort of glam goth thing going on she had bleached. her hair was bleached blonde uh and I, there was something interesting about her and so i she had she emailed me so i responded and we set up a date so i am i'm at the pub and i walk up to her and i and i say daniella and she says mike yeah and she says uh uh, hang on a second, and she was cute too, she, she had sort of like the, the corset-y uh, German uh, milkmaid girl, which is kind of ironic, but like that, that sexy thing, you know, I thought it was hot, you know, and so she gets up and says, can you watch my bag, I'm going to go to the bathroom? I said, yeah, and that's when it happened. She turned around, and the biggest ass I'd ever seen on a white girl came swinging around at me, and I, it came around fast. Too, because no, because if, if I don't know if you know geometry, but if if the further the wider the circumference, the faster it has to travel around a fulcrum, as opposed to a point closer on the radius. It's that's why ships on the horizon look like. The, anyway, forget that. Anyway, she turned around, and I saw this thing, and I just went like my eyes came out of my head, like in the cartoons, and like I knew I was I knew I was every bit of an ass man as I am a breast man, but. I'd never seen an ass this big, and I couldn't tell because she, she had a waist I, from behind the bar. And I don't know what came over me, but, but soon after, I'm, I'm dragging her out the door of the bar, and, and I'm getting a cab, and I open the door, and I, and I push her in, and, and we're flying over the Manhattan Bridge, and we're making out, and she pushes me away, we're like halfway over the bridge, she pushes me away, and she says, wait, I have to tell you something. I said, what? And she said, I'm engaged. And I said, okay. And she said, no. She said, no, wait, there's more. I said, what? She said, I've never been with any other man except for my fiance. And I said, well, then we have to do this. This has to be done. What's your fiance's name? And it, his name was Moses. I remember his name was Moses. I was about to betray Moses. And... and But I said, no, we we have to do this. We're doing this, this is my wedding present to you and Moses, we gotta do this. And and I know, I know, my friend the next day, she's, my friend says to me, Mike, you can't do that. You can't sleep with an engaged woman. I said, but I've slept with married women, so this is an improvement, right? She said, no, no, this is not, I said, wait, listen to me though, if she marries this guy, she's gonna spend the rest of her life wondering what another man is like, or more likely, she's gonna go find out what another man is like. I'm not doing this for me. I'm not even doing it for her. I'm doing this for Moses. This is my gift to Moses. Free. And she said, "That's not your business." I said, "I know it's not my business. It's my pleasure." So, okay. So anyway, I get her. I get her to my my place, and I I get her in in the bed, and we stripped out, and I just I just spend all night just scaling this thing like Gollum and Lord of the Rings. Like it was, it was I. Like hugged it. It was it was amazing, and I, and then we, like we took a shower too, and we and and the water just like cascaded off the side, and and I drank it and got younger. Like it was powerful <laughs> that thing. It was so I was I was just fixated, you know, and. I, we met, like, this went on for, like, maybe a week. We met, like, three, maybe four more times. And she would always come bouncing up to me with this big grin on her face, and then she would smile, and then she'd swing it around and show me, and then we'd go straight to my bed. And and it was great. We would sit in bed and cuddle, and I would just hold this thing. And, and, and everything was fine, but then her phone started vibrating and I looked over at it and I could see the name Moses. And I started to get that thing that good people have, what is it, scruples, right? And it started feeling like this is not right, like this isn't even a fling anymore. Now we're having an actual affair. I can't justify that. And and she, she would like jump out of bed and she'd grab her phone and she would, she would lean out my six-story window uh, there was no danger of her falling out, but she would lean out and to try to sound like she was on the street with her friends. And I was like, I started realizing, no, this is bad. This isn't right. It wasn't right, and now it's even more not right. And I, I, I gotta be better than this. So I meet her. I remember it was a Coney Island boardwalk. We had a date we were gonna meet there. And so she comes, she comes bounding up to me with that big smile on her face. And uh, I said, Daniela, we can't do this anymore. And she looked at me with these sad eyes and she said, why not? I said, because you're engaged. You, This isn't right, you have to figure out if you're still attracted to your fiance. And she just nodded and said, I know. I said, I'm sorry, Daniela." She said, it's okay. And I said, well, besides, you know, Yom Kippur is coming up. You're going to want to be with him, with your family. And she said, what's Yom Kippur? I said, it's one of the high Jewish holidays, right? And then I, it hit me. I said, Daniela, are you Jewish? She said, No. I said, well, then what are you doing on J-Date? She said, I like Jewish boys. (laughs) I, I said, Daniela, you know that I'm not Jewish, right? She said, yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, you are, you are. I said, what are you talking about? She said, you said so in your profile. You said, I am Jewish. I said, Daniela, that was a joke. Didn't you read the rest of it? Didn't you see... My handle was goitoy 2000 I mean... And then it hit me. Not only is she not Jewish, but she's dumb. (laughs) The power of a woman's ass blinded me to my only two rules. And I just said, goodbye, Daniela, and... And I kissed her on the cheek and, and I just stood there and I, I watched her as she walked away all the way down the boardwalk. And I just kept watching until she was completely out of sight. Took about a half hour. Thank you.
2: That is all for this week, folks. This is Noel Gallagher behind me now. Hey, listen, someone I love dearly. Uh, she is the producer of the Risk Live show in New York, and she is a faculty member at thestorystudio.org. Ms. Michelle Walson is teaching a storytelling workshop in Boston on March 25th at the Women in Comedy Festival. If you're in Town, check it out. And listen, if you liked today's episode, maybe you can uh, do a little something for us. You could always donate to us uh, on our site. If you scroll down the front page, there's a little Keep Risk Running logo there on the right-hand side. You can get our two all-star episodes in our shop at risk-show.com. You may not know it, but it helps us out a great deal if you leave a positive comment about us on iTunes. We're very much hoping to get some press coverage this year, so you can always tweet to Entertainment Weekly at EW or to Rolling Stone at Rolling Stone. Send them our URL, risk-show.com, and use the hashtag ReviewRisk. You don't have a Twitter account. You can email them at EW underscore letters at EW.com or rseditors@ at RollingStone.com. And please tell all your friends and family about Risk. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. If you want to know how to pitch us your stories, go to Risk-Show.com submissions. And for more about our storytelling workshops, including workshops for businesses, go to the Story Studio Org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
4: Shout it out. Easter egg. Easter egg.